Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I'm going to be back in the uh, first epistle to Timothy. You can be turning there, but before we go there, I'm going to draw our attention to Psalm 115.3. This is one of my favorite brief descriptions of who God is should set upon our minds a picture of who God is and what He's like and how He manages the affairs of this world. Psalm 115.3 says, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. Now that is a declaration of the absolute sovereignty of God in the rule of this world. And it's been my experience that lots of people have lots of issues with that fact. Even God's people who say, yes, I affirm that God is sovereign and He's in charge of this world. I affirm that completely. We often find ourselves taking issue with how God has chosen to exercise His sovereign rulership. Now, there's any number of things in your own life or in your nation or in your family or in your education or your job where you might say, well, I really wish it was like this and I wish this was different and that was different. And, you know, there might be a thought in the back of your head, something along the lines of, well, if I were God, I would do it differently than that. I would not have a lot of this stuff going on in the world. However, God hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And we have to live with that. We have to reconcile ourselves to it because all of the things that God hath pleased to do or pleased to permit in this world may not necessarily be in agreement with how you would want things to be done. So it's important that we establish ourselves in this notion that God does things His way and He's in charge and we have to conform ourselves to His plan for things. We are in the uh, book of 1 Timothy, and we're starting the second chapter. I've referred to this book as an example of family instruction. And the reason I did that was because he refers to Timothy as his son in the faith. There's a familial allusion made here. Obviously, Timothy was not Paul's natural son, but he refers to him as his son. It's really sort of my son in the ministry. And I spoke to how our elders often speak of, I had a father in the ministry, and -and so-and-so was my father. Elder Phelan was my father in the ministry. And I know other elders who speak of multiple elders as their fathers in the ministry. And this is a a thing that uh, is very common, but it's biblical, right? You see Paul making the reference, and when our elders make references like that, they're just referring to this same sort of relationship that exists. And in the first epistle to Timothy... Paul is trying to do some instruction here to his son, as a father in the ministry to his son in the ministry. And this has application beyond just the father-son ministerial relationship. It has to do with how the church should be formed, how elders should conduct themselves. It has a lot of instruction in it that's not just specifically, I'm telling a minister how to do things, but it has broader application than that. In this second chapter of Timothy, we run into one of the passages that is often raised up against us and and kind of militates against in the minds of many men the doctrine that we believe which is particular redemption or limited atonement. That Christ died for the elect, He died for the sheep 
as John 10, 11 says. And we see some language there that if taken in isolation might lead you to that conclusion. But I'm going to show you in this sermon that there is no reason to insist that the so-called universal language that is employed here means that all of humanity is in view. I'll prove that to you. And then I'll also point out that there are systematic or theological reasons why we must not interpret what is said here to Timothy in that way. And hopefully that will become evident to you as well. So let's start by reading in chapter 2 in verse 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and honesty. Now, we see the introduction here to this reference to all men, right? And in the context here, this is very important when you're dealing with a reference of something like all men or all the world or these types of references that are found pretty regularly in different places in the Bible, it's important that we understand and qualify what is meant by all by the context of the remarks. There's a very crass interpretive principle that many Christians bring to the table, and it's often expressed as all means all. All just means all. It's just as plain as day. It says all, that must mean all. That is not only evidently not true, it is demonstrably not true in the Scriptures. And I'm going to show you some examples of that just to kind of get us comfortable with it. Because if you encounter this, among others, you often you might feel as though, well, this is kind of a compelling case they're making here. This all means all. It seems it's very plainly stated. But we want to look at this very closely here. First of all, I would say, you know, you find it commonly in language. You might hear terms that people regard as universal employed a lot in your common speech, but you understand by the context that it does not mean something universal. You might hear terms like everyone, right? Someone might say, well, are you going to the football game? Well, I don't think I'm going to go. Come on, man. Everyone is going, right? The term everyone kind of has a universal implication, right? Everyone. Many people who interpret the Bible, if they were interpreting your speech, they would say, so you're saying that 8 billion people are going to this football game? You said everyone, and everyone means everyone. Well, is there a context in which that everyone was invoked? Yes. The context is the football game. The football game draws a particular community. If it's Washita High School, it's people in the Donaldson community and people who have kids that go there. And there's a, a group of people that would be considered the everyone who would be going to attend that game. If you were saying it, you're really saying everyone I know is going or really what you're saying is lots and lots of people are going. And so when I say everyone, I'm just saying there's a bunch of people that are going to go. It's something that you shouldn't miss right? We use that type of language all the time. You can't get through a day if you take a hyper-literal view of terms like everyone. It would make a lot of the things you say totally ridiculous because you're ignoring the context. If someone did that to you, you would say, no, I'm not saying 8 billion people are going to be there. Obviously, I'm not saying that, right? So, it's commonly used in our language. 
It is used all throughout literature. If you read Shakespeare and you know all these great works of literature, and you found all these references like all men and everyone and the whole world, you're going to find that almost every single one of those is qualified by the context. In fact, I would say this. In most instances, it does not mean an absolutely universal reference. If you just look through literature and look at what's being said. The Bible works precisely the same way. It is the inspired, infallible Word of God that we have. It's preserved for us in English. However, it is a piece of literature as well, right? It has a lot of the same attributes as regular literature. So let me give you some examples. We said all men. The first thing we need to understand about prayers and intercessions, giving thanks, be made for all men. The second verse says, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So, what do we mean by this all? First of all, let's look over at Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. You'll remember this one, if not from church. If you haven't heard it read in the church, you probably remember it from uh, the Peanuts cartoons, the whole Charlie Brown Christmas special. When I read this verse, by the way, I don't know if this is out of order, but I hear Linus (laughs) reading it because I've heard that so many times. Chapter 2 and verse 1, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now, how are we going to interpret that all the world? Well, brother, all means all, all the world. The Bible's just as plain as the nose on your face. It says all the world. Those people didn't even know that North and South America existed at that time, right? This is qualified. It's speaking of Caesar Augustus. And when they're talking about all the world, they're talking about all of the Roman Empire, right? That's what they're talking about. That's all they have jurisdiction over. They weren't, you know, rowing boats over here and trying to Uh, levy taxes on the Mesoamericans living in modern-day Mexico. That was not going on. So all the world here does not mean all of humanity, everybody on planet Earth. It just simply does not mean that. Now, why is that? Because of the context, right? When we read that, we understand it. And it almost seems as if the question I'm asking were the people in Central America taxed as a result of this. You'd say, well, that's kind of ridiculous. Well, why do you think of it as ridiculous? You think of it as ridiculous because you understand innately that there's a context in which this whole world is being invoked. So you're doing it automatically in your own mind, just through your understanding of how language works. And I'll show you another few examples. Look over in Luke chapter 21. I'll give you a couple of examples that you can chew on. Luke 21 and 17. I'll start in 15. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And you shall be betrayed by both parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Now this is talking to the disciples here. Saying you're going to be hated by all men. Well, are you going to be hated by your fellow disciples who were sitting there next to you? Is literally every man on earth going to hate you for this? No, he's not saying that. He's saying the broader world, the very popular world that's against Christianity, is going to seem as though everybody's against me. Though you're going to have some people in this world who love you nevertheless. You see that? Does not mean absolutely all of humanity. We don't see one of the disciples turning to the other one in the context of that and say, well, why are you going to start hating me? I thought we were on the same team here. I thought we both loved the Lord. And they understand that that's not what's being said, right? It's not literally all of humanity. 
Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 45. We get a lot of preaching out of Acts chapter 2. And uh, there's a lot of lessons to be drawn out of that. Uh, and you know this example. And, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Now, these disciples on the day of Pentecost didn't start selling their goods and make sure that they were distributed to all of humanity. It wasn't that all men that's in view. It's actually defined in the context here. All men as every man had need, right? That means the needy that were within their sphere sort of indiscriminately. didn't matter who you were. If you were within their sphere and people they knew, they had sold their stuff, they had this money, and they're like, okay, you need something, I'll give you something. That's the all men that they have in mind, right? So that's, that's pretty clear. Turn a page over and look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 21. This is Peter, after having been told not to preach, which is something we're not going to put up with. If we're told not to preach, we're going to say what Peter said if we're acting properly. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We can't stop speaking about this. That's what we're doing in the ministry and what we must continue to do. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. Well, literally all of humanity glorified God for that which was done. Well, what about the people who are standing there in front of them saying, don't do this anymore? Were they at that interaction saying, I'm glorifying God for what you're doing here. I'm so happy you're preaching. Oh, by the way, we're going to forbid you to preach anymore. No, these men who are pressing this upon them are not glorifying God because of their preaching, right? So, once again, this all men does not design all of humanity. And you find these examples over and over again in the Bible. And yet when we come to them in places like 1 Timothy chapter 2, we often overlook that. So how do we qualify the all men here? Supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now here's a qualification of it. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Many of the Christian people at this point were kind of lowly, not wealthy people, not highly regarded in society. They're kind of the lower classes, you might say, in society. here. They're not people who are highly influential and important and educated and these sorts of things. And it is very easy in that sort of a scenario for a sort of us and them mentality to crop up. Where you start saying, well, we're the poor people, and then you got all these enfranchised people who are running the government and all these sorts of things. It's us and them. So, we Christian people are all, uh, we're all kind of poor and needy and poor, weak, and worthless, and, and we're down here. And then the other people are, they're running the show up there. And so, really, where that can go in your mind is that, well, Christians are like us, and everybody who's a king or in authority or something like that, they're not God's people at all, right? It's only us. All the elite and the powerful, they're out. So we don't, have to, we don't have to have any regard for them. This is talking about different kinds of people and is specifically calling their attention to, look, pray for kings and those who are in authority. Now this is one of those things that I think, honestly, Christians find very difficult to do. 
I don't know where you fall on a political spectrum today, but I've known enough old Baptists to know that there's quite a wide range of people's uh, political and social views on things. And no matter who you name as the president, say the last several that you might think about, you're going to find people who say, I'm going to find it pretty hard to pray for that person. I am so against their political bent and the way they do things, I just find it very difficult. I find it objectionable, right? You see why you might need to be told you need to pray for kings and those who are in authority over you? Some of you may not like Joe Biden right now. That doesn't mean you're not supposed to be praying for him. We should be praying for him. He's in authority over us. And by the way, why wouldn't we want to pray? Even if you're the biggest Joe Biden disliking person on the planet, why would you not want to pray that he would be given wisdom to do the right thing rather than doing the wrong thing, right? That's not a bad prayer, irrespective of what you think about his politics. It doesn't have to be Biden. It could be Trump or George Bush or Obama or whoever, right? Lots of people have lots of reasons to not like some of our leaders, but we should be praying for them. Nevertheless, irrespective of the fact that they're part of the connected establishment, and we, by comparison, are relatively lowly people. And it goes on in verse 3 to say this, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. It's good for us to be this way about it, and we should be praying for those who are in authority over us, though it may be difficult. Then it says this, Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth? Now, that's where we get in trouble with this all men situation. See, all means all. It just means absolutely all men. Well, we're already talking about kinds of men here. He's made this statement about thanksgiving being made and prayers being made for all men. And he's talking about kinds. He's talking about all different kinds of men. Do not think that one caste or another, those are the people who are in and this other group is out. You'll find examples in the Bible of lowly and relatively unenfranchised people being God's people. You find many of those. But you also find examples of people who are well-to-do and very much connected and involved in, in the affairs of this world and in the power structure of this world who are God's children, right? Examples that come to mind, somebody like Daniel, Right? Daniel was taken into Babylonian captivity, but he was kind of made the second in command over many things. And the fact that he was in that position did not mean that he wasn't a child of God. Right? You've got people all across every different area that are like that. So when it's talking about who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth, it's talking about all different types of men. Right? Probably the primary issue that grew up in the New Testament church was this issue of Jew versus Gentile. This is found all throughout the New Testament, constantly reinforcing the Jew and the Gentile, the Jew and the Greek. This is said over and over and over again. Now, if you're a Jewish person and you've been around the Jewish religion, you kind of got pickled in the idea that, well, the Jews are God's people, we're all okay, and everybody else is out, right? It's us against them. And they had to constantly reinforce this idea that, no, it's not, that's not how eternal salvation works. That's true of the Old Testament typology where God chose a nation and brought special blessings upon them. But that is a depiction of the new covenant blessings wherein there is Jew and Gentile. This is something that had to be perpetually brought to men's minds to keep them from thinking about things in terms of factions of different groups of people. Right? So he wants to have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. 
For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now that is one of the texts that differentiates us from many groups in Christendom. We believe that there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The mediation that is in view here is the mediation of eternal salvation to God's people. Okay? That's the mediation that is in view here. Preaching is a form of mediation. You follow me? I am telling you something from the Word of God. The Word of God is here. I am trying to impart to you some understanding of it. I'm trying to teach you, and every act of teaching is an act of mediating some measure of the truth, right? But this is talking about not that sort of mediation. It's talking about the mediation of eternal salvation towards God's covenant people. And in that work, it's God, Christ is the mediator, and He delivers it directly to His people, right? That is what is in view here. One God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, what many others teach is this idea that there are two mediators between God and men. In other words, without me standing up here as a gospel minister and telling you what Jesus has done, mediating that truth to you, you cannot be eternally saved. Well, No one would say we're pulling Christ out of the picture. But what they're doing is they're saying we've got to have Christ and we've got to have a gospel minister there that's mediating the truth to you so that you can acquire eternal salvation. We believe that the gospel minister is mediating the truth to you, right? He's mediating light to you, information, so that you can understand what Christ has done. But I'm not imparting eternal life to anyone through what I do. Nothing I've ever said has ever gotten one more person into heaven. Nothing you've ever believed that I've said had anything to do with how you got eternal salvation. If I ever said anything that was true and you received it as the truth, you were only able to do that because you already had eternal salvation. And that's because the one mediator between God and men, the Lord Jesus Christ, had already touched your heart with immediate Holy Spirit regeneration, such that you would be receptive to gospel truth. See that? So, and it says, uh, He's the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all, we've got to be careful about that all, to be testified in due time. In other words, in due time, it's going to be made very manifest who this all is. Right? By the way, if that all is all of humanity, and Christ has paid their ransom... How's anybody going to hell? Right? If someone came in and paid off your mortgage, how are you going to have your house repossessed? I went and paid the mortgage off on your house. The bank is not going to show up and repossess that house. The debt has been settled. Right? You may not even know anything about it. Somebody could go pay off your bank note. You don't know anything about it. But it's true nevertheless, and the bank's not going to come get your house if they're functioning as a proper bank. They're going to say the debt was settled at your house, right? Same thing is true here. And in gospel ministry, we're not out here trying to help people pay off their house. Gospel ministry is saying the Lord Jesus Christ has ransomed His people. 
He did that at Calvary. If you're someone who hears and believes this truth, you're bringing forth the fruit that you have been born of His Spirit and can receive that. You're one of those people that has the ears to hear. Jesus Christ was constantly preaching and saying, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. What's He saying? He's saying, everyone that has the natural capacity of hearing? No, He's talking about people who have the ability to understand this. He's talking about those who are born of the Spirit of God. And so this all, if the ransom was for all, by the way, everybody's going to heaven. That's just all there is to it. Otherwise, you're going to say, well, it was ransom, but it kind of wasn't a ransom. He kind of paid the ransom for all, but he didn't also. Well, that doesn't make any sense. He says he gave himself a ransom for all, and this is going to be testified in due time. Now, the Bible is very clear that hell is real, and it has human occupancy. So there's some people going to hell. So you can't take universal application on this. So this all is going to be testified in due time. And that all is none other than the elect family of God. Verse 7, Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. There's that element I was bringing up before, right? I'm a teacher of the Gentiles. Now, Paul was raised as a Jewish person. He was raised in the Jewish religion. He had all that sort of instruction in that religion that was pretty much the Jews are in and everybody else is out. Now he is the instructor of the Gentiles. He's making it very apparent that there's people involved in God's salvation that don't have anything to do with the historical nation of Israel and the Jews. So he has a ministry unto the Gentiles, and this is some of the all kinds that are in view when we talk about all here. Verse 8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So we should be prayerful, you know, those are in, who are in positions of authority over us, we should be praying about that. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, there's a systematic reason. I kind of gave you some of the language reasons. But there's a systematic reason as well that we have to regard this all as something other than all of humanity. And I want to give you a couple of examples in that. First of all, look at Romans chapter 9. Just a few pages back. And this is Paul giving an explicit description of God's work of eternal salvation. We're going to be in 9 starting in verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Now that verse states very, very plainly that your personal performance in righteousness has nothing to do with the calling of God and those who are going to be eternally saved. This is one of the most offensive verses in the Bible to many people who read it because it's very plain. It's like these people haven't even done any good or evil. It can't be based on this good or evil. And if you say, well, maybe they hadn't done it, but God could see what it was and that's how He was doing it. But He cuts you off on that avenue because He says that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works but of him that calleth. So even if you take that first part and you say, well, they hadn't done any good or evil, but God saw the good and evil and he made the determination on that point. Hmm, that might be true. Yeah, but it's not of works, right? So you're cut off on exploring that avenue because right after this, he admits it's not of works, but of him that calleth. In other words, what determines a man's eternal salvation is the calling of God in election, not his works, 
So that's a very important point to make, but it's highly offensive to the natural mind. But it's the clear testimony of God. And he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. That's what we read in Psalm 115.3. So we have to kind of accept that even if we find it maybe not in keeping with the way we think things ought to work. Verse 12, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. Well, that's the opposite of how it's supposed to work in natural things, right? Typically, it's the younger brother's going to serve the older brother, and the older brother's going to get the inheritance. And that's so even in this Old Testament example, it's contrary to how you think it's supposed to work. And this is kind of putting this in your face and saying, no, I'm putting this in your face because salvation doesn't work the way you think it's supposed to work either. It works the way God has says it's going to work, and it has nothing to do with your works, and it's according to His purpose in election. And in this verse 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Very contrary to the way many people think about the way salvation works. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? So you can see many people would object to this, and Paul recognizes that when people hear this, they're going to say, that doesn't sound fair. So they're going to say, that's unrighteous for God to do it that way. Well, hath he done whatever he hath pleased? The Bible tells us he has, and he anticipates this objection. Is there unrighteousness with God? That's unrighteous if God does it that way. God forbid, he says. The idea of accusing God of unrighteousness in this, and then he gives this example. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's what God said to Moses. He said, I'm doing it the way I want to do it. It's about who I want to show compassion on. That's what it's about. It's not about your works. It's about God's choice in the matter. And by the way, if you go back and look at that, uh, I think it's Exodus 33, 19, you're going to find that God is saying, this is a manifestation of my goodness that I'm giving you here when I tell you this. It's not, I'm going to tell you how evil I am. I'm going to tell you how unfair I am. It's, I'm going to show you how good I am. This is an example of God being good. And God is not ashamed of this testimony It's what he told Moses. It's what uh, is being repeated here in Romans, and it is the doctrine of election and salvation that is not by works. It's by the choice of God and the calling of God. And he makes this very, very clear in verse 16. As if, you know, there's going to be this objection that's there. Well, it's just so unfair for God to not base it on our works. By the way, if God based it on our works, wouldn't any of us get into heaven? See, that's the problem. That's the problem. We think that, well, if we do enough good things, even just, you know, well, accepting Jesus isn't that good. Well, it's not going to get you into heaven. What Christ did gets you into heaven. And that's just all there is to it. Verse 16, so then it is not of him that willeth. It's not about your good intentions or your will in the matter. Nor of him that runneth, which is all the stuff you do. It's not about your will or the stuff you've done but of God that showeth mercy. It comes down to this. Salvation is a function of God's sovereign divine will, and He has said, I'm going to have mercy on whom I shall have mercy. That's the way it works. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. And it may rub you the wrong way, but that's the testimony of the Word of God nevertheless. And you can even see in how Paul addresses it. I see that this is going to rub some people the wrong way. 
And he's talking to the Roman church. You see what I'm saying? It's like, well, it only rubs the heathens the wrong way. Abject, unbeliever, abject unbelievers don't care anything about any of this stuff anyway. He's talking to the church at Rome, and the fact that he deals with this objection is pointing out, this even rubs some of God's people the wrong way, right? Because they think, that's just not how I think it's going to work. Well, Paul, he deals with that, and he, he comes back and, and talks about it very explicitly there. Uh, I'll give you one other example of why it systematically can't mean that God is trying to save all of humanity. We'll find that in John chapter 8. I think we may have covered this a month or two ago, but maybe it's good to be reminded of it. John chapter 8 and verse 43. And he's talking to a bunch of people here uh, mentioned before about this idea of having the ears to hear. Jesus was always saying, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. He's talking about people who have spiritual hearing. He's talking about having the spiritual capacity of being able to receive things, being born again. Now this group of people, he says, Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Now wait a minute, these people are getting angry with Jesus. So is he talking about natural hearing? Is he, is he addressing a group of deaf people here? Right? This is another good example of how you can't take this hyper-literal view. Well, it says they cannot hear His Word. That plainly means they must be deaf. No, he's not talking about physical hearing here. He's talking about being able to receive spiritual truth. What he's saying is, you don't have the ears to hear. This further proves that the ears to hear concept is talking about a spiritual capacity of hearing. It's talking about someone who has faith. Someone who can hear what God says and receive it as the truth. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Their sense of spiritual hearing is so out of whack that they don't hear specifically because he's telling them the truth. You see that? They're so incapable. It's like, how could I ensure to someone like this that you can't hear what I'm saying? All I got to do is tell you the truth because I know you can't hear that, right? The very fact that he's telling them the truth is indicative of how they don't have the capacity to hear it. And Jesus affirms that here. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. So, you see very plainly here, you've got people who can hear and people who can't. And you can take someone who does not have the ears to hear, and you can pour gospel content all over them all day long, and they are never going to hear this truth until they are touched by the one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? Who gives them then the ability to hear it. So those are some systematic reasons why we have to handle it that way. Let's move on in Timothy, having kind of dealt with that section of it, and we'll close up here with some things that are said. He kind of turns his attention to women. Verse 9. By the way, these types of things in the Bible, in our time, things that are taught in the Bible about the complementary roles between men and women are regarded as just absolutely offensive. But this is what the Word of God says, and we have to accept it unapologetically. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, 
with shamed facedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Now, the statement that's made here speaks to women adorning themselves. And it's not difficult to kind of see what that means, but I think what this is talking about is if someone were to look at you externally, knowing only you know, some very high-level things about your life, how would they say you are adorned? Or is your person primarily adorned with vain externalities, hairdos, makeup, jewelry, fancy clothes, all this sort of stuff? Is that what characterizes or adorns your person? Or is it virtue, good works, and how you're living your life? I don't believe this verse is at all saying women can't ever fix themselves up, right? I don't think it's saying that at all. There are many places in the Bible where it talks about being, you know, dressed for occasions and having jewelry on and all these sorts of things. It is not forbidding that sort of thing. It's asking you, I think, to ask yourself the question, how do I adorn my life? Am I adorned with a bunch of externalities? Am I just simply this vain person? That all anyone can say about me is that I take a good picture and I've got the latest fashions on and I've always got some new outfit or something like that. Is that how you're characterized? I mean, by the way, this is kind of like the model here is like an Instagram influencer, right? Look at all the stuff I've got. Look, I've got the new clothes. i got this and that. It's that kind of model that I think is in view And rarely do you hear people like that described as, well, they're known for their good works, right? We really admire this person because of all the good they visit into their community, because they're highly virtuous. Now, it's usually things that are totally superficial. And he says that this becometh women professing godliness with good works. See what I'm saying? What is the characteristic of your life? When people look back, are they going to say, well... They were always just dressed to the nines and they had the latest fashion and they were constantly focused on that. What a horrible testimony of someone's life that would be if that's where at the end of your days people look back and they say, well, that's that's the testimony. What that is is a testimony of tremendous personal vanity and a total lack of understanding of how God would want you to live your life. What you would want is for people to look back and say, I remember this time that this person was sick over there, and they went and made a meal and took it over there to them. I remember one time that we had an emergency, and this person had to watch our kids and had to keep them for two weeks. And you see how that adorns your life with good works? It characterizes your person, and it displays your love for the Lord in a way that putting on mascara and jewelry and things like that cannot ever do. This shouldn't be the thing that adorns your life. By the way, that word, adorn, I don't often make reference to Greek words, but that one's very interesting. That word is cosmeo. Does that sound familiar? Cosmetics is the idea, right? It's the superficial, it means putting things in order. So I think the recommendation that is made here is not that, okay, you're just never going to adorn yourself at all. You're going to wear rags and no makeup. You're never going to comb your hair. It's not saying that. And believe me, if any of y'all take it that way, I don't want to see you showing up here on Sunday morning. It's going to be bad. (laughs) So we're not going to an extreme here. It's talking about cosmeo 
cosmetics or the cosmos. It's how things are put in order, right? So have yourself put in order as a result of being someone who does good works in the kingdom of God. It serves other people. That's in order. That's the sort of thing you want to adorn your life, to let it be known that you love the brethren, that you do things for them. You find ways to serve and to love one another, right? So I think he's trying to shift a focus there. And I don't think it's controversial to say women are naturally focused on these sorts of things. It's just evidently true. And to the extent that they're naturally focused on it, it becomes very easy for them to become overly focused on it. So he's saying reorient your life around good works rather than around vain superficialities. But now this is where it starts to get really upsetting to some people, and it's, it's particularly relevant in our time because there are other Baptists in the world who are really bucking against this now. There's a lot of trouble among Baptists in this domain. But I'm going to read it to you very plainly here, and it's just, this is just the plain testimony of the Word of God here. And so we have to accept it. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp, authority over the man but to be in silence. Now that's talking about in the order of the church and instruction in the church. It's not difficult to understand, but it is being cast to the garbage by Christendom today. And that's happening even among Baptists. Now there's an objection to this that gets raised where people say, well that's just that was Paul talking to this particular culture at this time and so it was it's not a universal statement here because he is just talking to what's going on in this culture here in the ancient Near East. But the problem is his argument for this goes all the way back to the fall. So this does base itself on a universal argument about the differences between men and women. And that's why we are complementarians. We do not believe men and women are equal in their capacities. They're not. Men are stronger. There's there's any number of ways that you can distinguish between the two, and they're not controversial provided anyone's willing to take a sober look at them. However, in verse 13 it says, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Now he's talking about, look, I'm taking this all the way back to the beginning. This is how men and women are. He's not saying, well, because of the culture in uh, Ephesus, or, you know, he's not saying that. He's saying all the way back to Adam and Eve, this is how it is. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. He's tying it back to the fall and Eve's role in the fall. That's just what it is. So we have to accept that. But then he goes on to make this statement, and I'll end here. This is the end of the chapter. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and in holiness with sobriety. Now, this is another good example of how you've got to handle words properly in the, in the New Testament. Be very careful about the context. She shall be saved in childbearing. That's not talking about eternal salvation, right? If it was, I guess you'd have to have a child to be eternally saved. Well, that's not the case. She shall be saved in childbearing if they... Now, if we're talking about eternal salvation, then mom's eternal salvation is based on how they They're her kids do things. Well, that doesn't make any sense. This is a good example of conditional time salvation. And it's talking about the salvation that women have that bear children. 
when they see their children continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. There's a very special blessing that comes to a mother in particular who sees her children growing up and living in the faith, living as they ought. And to the extent that they don't, it visits great distress into the life of a mother. If you have a child that is not doing as they ought, this can be incredibly distressing to parents, particularly to a mother. And this is talking about how if they have done the good works that they ought to do and raised their children as they ought and they see them continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety, she's going to be saved in that. She's going to find a salvation in that that's going to visit a lot of peace into her life. So that's the end of chapter 2. I appreciate uh, your good attention on this. I hope we see that God purposed to save all sorts of men, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor. There's a lot of different types of men there, and that's really what's designed by this all language that's given there. It's found throughout the, the New Testament. We believe that the roles of men and women are complementary. That is the biblical position on things. They don't have full access to all of the exact same things. You can't have a female elder. It's just unheard of. It's totally unheard of. Now, you get into our time and you say, well, I see all these churches all around that have female pastors and female elders. You don't have to go that far back in church history before you realize there weren't any churches doing this. So it's an innovation, to say the least. But it's clearly contrary to the Word of God. It's contrary to the modern feminist ethos that says a woman should be able to do whatever job a man can have, and that means she should be able to be a pastor or an elder. But it's clearly not in the Word of God, and in fact the exact opposite is taught. Now, <laughs> He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. The Lord wrote this book and gave us this instruction and that's how it should be. You'll be blessed in following it, so it's important that we do. And there are times when we have to deal with the fact that some of the things we find in the Word of God may be contrary to how we think they should be done. But nevertheless, as disciples, we need to submit to the Word. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.